Welcome to another episode of Central Coast and Corked. Welcome. We are taking you to Eberly Wine Winery and Vineyards this week. And I have to admit that I've been a Central Coast resident for all of 29 years now. And I have never been to Eberly. It's I've seen it a million times driving by. It has always been there as I was growing up on 46 East, heading heading out of Paso. But I never stopped in. So. I have been there. I've been there, I, been there. I can think of like two times. Okay. Um, but I did not give them the credit they deserved. <laughs> and I had never been there, so I never gave them any credit. And I think that like this visit and episode really showcases what they're all about. I had no idea that they were family run. I kind of um, thought of them as like a larger operation. Yeah. I think maybe just based on the fact that they are in 46 East and have a really large sign and have cave tours and um, like are across the street from Tobin James essentially kind of like grouped them together and yeah. like, you know, big production. Um, but it was super interesting to like get to actually hear the story and taste through the wines. I was very impressed by the wines. Muscat Canelli, which typically, you know, a little bit sweeter not something I'm a huge fan of. Delicious. And it was sweet, but it was delicious. Yeah. Very well balanced. I Super just, good. I enjoyed everything about it. I thought the staff was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So welcoming and kind. Mm-hmm. I thought the tour was great. I totally want to do a VIP visit in yeah. our cave or yeah. a dinner or something down there. Um, I loved walking into the tasting room because... Um, you know, you go into a lot of tasting rooms and it feels maybe a little stuffy, but you go in there, like the poodles are there to greet you, like at the front of the door, like when you first get there and you go inside and people have their dogs, which is awesome. I love a dog friendly place. It feels very homey. Like it's big inside, like it's enough to accommodate groups if needed. For sure. Um, but it feels homey and there was just like a hustle and bustle that, wasn't intimidating. It just felt like, hey, want to get in on this conversation. Yeah. So all in all, we had a really great time. We had a really good conversation with Gary Eberly, who is the owner and um, founding winemaker of Eberly. And I think that you guys will really enjoy the episode. I hope you do. If you don't, then... Shame on you. Yeah, shame <laughs> on you, because it was great. He was great. Like, it was... It was delightful. I just want to go back. Like, honestly, if we hadn't had a schedule to keep to. I, I would have just drank the rest of that yeah, bottle at 92 with him. I could have hung out all day there with him yeah. and had him <laughs> tell me stories and give me wine. And it was delightful. Like, I could have stayed there all day. Yeah, it was great. So, thank you very much to Everly Winery for hosting us. Yes, thank um, you. We were super excited to be there, and we hope that you guys go and check them out. They are one of the last uh, remaining wineries, I think, in the Paso area that do a free wine tasting. Yes. So, if that's an incentive for you, definitely stop in and check them out. Even if it's not, stop in and check them out. <laughs> yeah. We are sure that you'll find something you love. All right, you guys. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and we'll see you next week. every half an hour so we're going to get ahead of the next I'll just tell you a little bit about Gary Everly's history he is known as the pioneer of the Fast Troubles wine region he co-founded the Appalachian in 1983 um, established Everly his first vintage was 1979 he has kind of an interesting story he actually grew up in Pennsylvania um, in a little town called Pittsburgh, or called, a little town called Pittsburgh, a little town called Moon Township. And he uh, was an all-star football player in high school, received a full-ride scholarship to play for Penn State. He played for Joe Paterno in the 60s as a defensive lineman. You'll notice that he's not a small man. That's actually a picture of him on the wall. He um, graduated from Penn State with a biology degree, went down to LSU, Louisiana State University, and was studying cellular genetics. He wanted to become a doctor, and he started drinking wine with one of his professors down there, and it was just like, I don't want to be a doctor, I want to be a professional <laughs> professional alcoholic. That's my dream job. And, right, right, and transferred out to UC Davis in the early 70s, 
and then uh, came down here and established his first winery, which was Estrella Winery and Vineyard, okay. which is now known as Cellar 360, yeah. and at one time was Meridian. But yeah. uh, made his first vintage of Everly in 1979 and built the winery in 1982. So this is the whole winery. You know, we're family-owned. We produce about 28,000 cases. Wow. We sell half of it right through our tasting room and wine club direct to consumer and the other half we sell in the wholesale market okay so gary was a became a pilot in his early days and flew wine all across the country so we're distributing he does in about a lot 30 states he's a really he's the he's the man yeah i mean he co-founded the appalachian he's a he has a lot of stories um so this is the entire winery and i was telling you that his big dream kind of outgrew his uh the space yeah so he had to go underground well, that's cool that he's still doing it. He hasn't like sold it oh, or moved oh, no. on or anything. It's, like it's his it's, passion. That's really cool. It's his passion. He lives right back the winery. One of his greatest mentors was Robert Mondavi, oh, wow. and he'll tell you, you know, Robert Mondavi never made a bottle of wine, but he was a great marketer, mm-hmm. and um, so that was one of Gary's mentors. And so, you know, Gary started off making the wines, doing everything. And he's seventy, going to be seventy-six now. But he, I mean, sits in front of the winery, greets people every day. He's here every day. He loves, this is him. Yeah. This is his passion. Yeah. That's so cool. Yes. So we have a little over 16,000, almost 17,000 uh, underground caves. Wow. This is actually uh, dug out by a mining equipment. It's um, rebar reinforced with a night about a foot and a half deep. This is either the warmest place during the winter or the It's all naturally controlled, which is really a great money-saving kind of um, thing. Uh, Holds about 1,500 to 2,000 barrels. That's Uh, a lot of wine. (laughs) Yes, it is a lot of wine. And it has a lot of different facets. So I'm going to walk you by our VIP room, which is private tastings and cheese plates. So just walk by. Yeah. So people can have a private tasting with up to like six people. You get your own, you know, private tasting host and a cheese plate. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of Is that fun. like a call ahead? That's or? a point. We have three appointments a day. Okay. It's $50 a person. And okay. it's uh, 1, 11, 1, 3 p.m. Very cool. Yeah. So that's just our storage room. I love how it smells down here. <laughs> oh, we're we're going to intercept yeah, so um, definitely uh, a lot of different facets to our cave. All of these are full of wine. All of these are full of wine. Um, yeah, so, you know, harvest takes place in the fall, as you know. And, um, yeah, so we are, all the work down here is done by hand. So it's not like, you know, we can have forklifts in here. Right. So our cellar crew is very, very good shape. They go to rack barrels. They'll actually take the barrel, they have a tire on the floor, they'll empty the wine, of course, but when they go to like clean the barrels or rack, they'll yeah. actually bounce it off a barrel and roll it down to wow. the, you know. <laughs> we do wine dinners, uh, gift chef wine dinners, uh, oh my God, periodically through the years, and we do special events. This is what we call the wild boar room. And we had our uh, black tie Valentine's Day dinner on Friday. Gorgeous in here. It is so pretty. You know, during Christmas time, we have a huge Christmas tree that's in that area, and it's just like this really pretty. pretty do you guys rent out this space? We at all? do. We do weddings. We do private parties. Yeah. We do corporate meetings. We do all kinds of things. Everly means small bore in German. Yeah. Oh, so oh, is that's why there's the, yes. the like statue out front. That's what Gary's last oh, name translates okay. to. Knock knock. Here. I'm glad someone works around I, here. I know, right? Nice. You Jamie? Shanice. Shanice. I'm Jamie. Pleasure. So nice to meet you. So this was the Viognier. Yeah, this is the one wine that embarrasses Ooh. us the most. Why is that? Because we're a red wine house and we're getting more <laughs> damn gold medals and platinums for our Viognier than we are for anything else. Oh, that is lovely. It's the only white wine I really genuinely enjoy. Yes. 
Yeah, I really like VVA as well. I'm so mm. glad that it has become more popular in this area. I was I was construct. I made my first VNA in '92, and I think we were the six first ones in the Central Coast to do it, and uh, one of the first in the in this, the United States. But uh, uh, well, my first attempts at it were really terrible because I was I I didn't have any background on it other than you know I've been to. Condrieu and to Grie and Chateau Condrieu. And I wound up making it pretty much the same, used the same protocol as I did for Chardonnay, which was absolutely stupid. <laughs> I mean, I did everything I could to ruin a perfectly good grape and wine. But uh, after about five or six years, we got the hang of it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say so. This is delicious. Yeah. Is it, you know, the, well, the thing that makes it such a great wine is it's got that stone fruit, mm -hmm. peachy apricot, even honeysuckle kind of nose. Yeah. And almost a sweet entry, even though it's dry. It's mm -hmm. really... Uh, yeah. I want to drink it, like, with my breakfast in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is, that's why I had this glass here this morning. I drink it with my perusal of the emails come in overnight. <laughs> that's my favorite thing on my days off. Oh. Had a little white wine in the morning. White white wine to start the day. Do you find that Viognier? So, like, I have heard that of the red wine grapes, like Pinot Noir, can be very finicky to work with. Is is there a white wine grape that is similar in that regard? Um, well, yeah. I mean, there's um, when I first came out of Davis, and I planted that eight hundred acres of Australia and built that winery. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I put in almost 60 acres of Chenin Blanc. Oh, wow. Because Chenin Blanc at that time yeah. was, you know, this was uh, Robert Mondavi and Charles Krug mm -hmm. Chenin Blancs and the Wente brothers Blanc de Blanc. And, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just with a little bit of sugar. And man, it was popular. It's the wines that really started the white wine revolution. And um, well, I planted it. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I did my doctorate at Davis. And, but nobody ever told me no one ever explained to me that Chenin Blanc, <clears throat> you know, all, all plants have stomates mm -hmm. on the bottom of the leaves where they take in CO2 and give off oxygen. And yeah. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Well, Chenin Blanc, the stomates don't close. When, when it gets dry, you know, plants will close down. There's two kidney bean-shaped cells and they close down the hole so that the vines don't, or the plants don't desiccate. Mm -hmm. Chenin Blanc doesn't. And you can almost be literally watering I mean, irrigating, and the vines couldn't pump up enough fluid. The roots couldn't take in enough water to keep the tendrils and the leaves from starting to wilt. Interesting. But one of my biggest, biggest disappointments, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, I liked them. I mean, and the people that, well, you know, we're, we're you know, uh, Chenin Blanc is, you know, that's the Loire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's moist and it's cool and it's you know I think the ancestral home yeah. of Saint Blanc in France anyway. But uh, what's your favorite white wine to make? Yeah, uh, Viognier. Yeah. yeah. Now that you, now you figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Now that, well, now that we got now that we got a hang, you know, uh, you know, down and and we are doing. I mean, we do very well with the uh, our Chardonnay and our white Rhone blend. But uh, overall, I would say uh, Viognier is probably our most successful. And from my point of view, from my taste buds, the, you know, the best white wine that we make year in and year out. Good. Yeah. And this one, is this a state fruit or is this sourced? Um, or it, mixed? <laughs> it, it is mixed. Okay. But, it, well, I mean, legally it could be a state mm -hmm. because it comes from vineyards that we are partners in. Okay. But it is not contiguous, although I've, we've got some Viognier coming on in the back of the vineyard. Um, and I go by the old traditional, you know, the vineyard and winery are supposed to be contiguous to be a state. Okay. So it's either a state or on the front label, or if it's a, a, a wine with a lot of grapes in it, on the back label, exactly what the percentage is and where they, where they come from. Very cool. All of them, 
all of our food comes from pasture rebels, though. Yeah. <clears throat> so you've seen a lot of change then in the wine industry here locally because <laughs> you've been here for a long time. Yeah. What are you most excited to like see coming up now? Oh boy, um, you, know, you know the real big change occurred about fifteen years ago, even twenty years, fifteen twenty years ago. Because when I got here, there were three wineries that have been here since the repeal of prohibition. And the wines, um, with the exception of one, never even got out of the county. Okay. And the one, I think, was getting selling some wine in Kern County. Um, and, and I came down, and, and I, I used to joke, I said, you know, I came to Paso Robles. I was the only one that could spell grape. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and I, I built, you know, the first modern winery. And brought in the first, I mean, I was an enologist, and I brought in two more enologists, one of us is still here. And um, we were we were making very good wines. I mean, both at Australia, and then when I got Everly going. The problem was that um, a lot of um, home winemakers sort of found, you know, Geez, you know, I've been making wine in my garage. I want to make wine, and they would come to Paso because you could, you could play the game here. Yeah. Very inexpensively. Land was cheap. Everything was cheap, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and we got a lot of guys that were terribly enthusiastic. I mean, they just loved, and they were very, but they had no idea what they were doing, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, two out of five years, I'd make a great wine. And two out of five years, I'd make a hideous wine, and one time, they'd break even type of a thing. Yeah. Um, but as we grew, and, 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 and we got a bad rep, reputation because people, the wine writers, say, oh, man, we had this wine from Pastor Robles. It's terrible. We just, you know. <laughs> and it, it, it it's very hit or miss. <laughs> it took a while to get the ball, you know, to get the push the boulder up the hill. And uh, about 15, 20 years ago, we started getting winemakers, enologists, people who had worked uh, at wineries. In my class, when I came out of Davis, there were 17 of us, every one of us got a job as winemaker, not assistant or lab tech, yeah. or but we were winemakers. And we made some of the most spectacular, absolutely wonderful, cookbook wines, you know, production, because I, I remember talking, you know, uh, with other guys, you know, oh, what's the answer to this? Well, look on wine production, page 144, you know, <laughs> type thing. And it just took um, trial and error experience to get to the point where you could incorporate the education that you had the, the textbook skills that you had and incorporate them into you know, the, the real um, art of winemaking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, uh, I, people say, well, which is more important? I think they're both equally important. You have to know, I think you need to know biologically and chemically what's happening in a wine and what yeah. the potential is going to be during the fermentation, particularly the temperatures you're using, whatever. And also, uh, how to take a particular character that the grapes bring in, and they're different every year. Uh, some years vastly, some years pretty uh, uh, much the same. But how do you say, geez, man, in that, in that grape, there's a, how do you enhance that character? And, uh, or I want to move to enhance that character. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and now we've got winemakers, uh, God, got to be a hundred of them, that are winemakers. I mean, they're, they don't just love grapes, but they have the knowledge. And they produce very good wines, even in bad years, year in and year out. They're able to, you know, because they know how to, they not only have apprenticed, and they've worked at other wineries, and, uh, you know, they came up through, through the ranks. Uh, and now they're making wonderful wines. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing how many 
really good winemakers there are in Paso Robles now. And I think that was a, the single biggest thing that's happened. Going into the future, I, I think Paso, uh, a lot of what is going to happen in the Paso's future is going to depend on people like you. Because mm -hmm. we've got the wines now, mm -hmm. and we've got the hotels, and we've got the great restaurants, and we have the experiences, you know, besides uh, the wine, you know, things like Sensorio and Hearst Castle, and there's a bunch yeah. of stuff that's going on. But there's still a large portion of uh, the population that think that wine country is still and only Napa, Sonoma. Yeah. And Napa particularly. And I think it's just getting uh, the population really educated. And, and it's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I, mean I, I remember, you know, back in the 70s, going to places like New York or Dallas or Miami and say, hey, try this Paso Robles Cabernet. And people would go, is that in Texas? <laughs> is that in Baja, California? You know, I mean, yeah. it's a type of a thing. <clears throat> now people know where it is, but, and they're starting to come and they're starting to realize that not only is it, as exciting and the quality of the wine says good, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for now. And may, yeah, <laughs> now. well, and, and, and maybe even a little uh, tourist friendlier. Yeah. I, I think uh, we are still at that stage where hospitality is a very important uh, aspect mm -hmm. of yeah. what we do. I hope we keep that, like even as the area grows and changes, like one thing that I, I love about being here is it's everyone, especially with us doing this, has been super open and welcoming and kind. And you know, I hope, like we need to be a little snootier so that everyone can make more money, but like not to Napa's extent, like I'm not trying to get that fancy. <laughs> it's too much. I yeah. think, you know, a little the homeliness, homeliness comfort, yeah. I think, yeah. is good. Yeah, I did, I, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, I, when I came to California, uh, when I crossed to get to, to go to Davis, I had a seven-year-old Pontiac and about $600 in a U-Haul full of hand-me-down furniture. <laughs> I should never have been able to have my own winery. And you know the problem is so many really super talented winer, wineries have great winemakers, but the winemakers don't really own the winery. Yeah. I mean, there are exceptions, but for the you know that's uh, and there's always a conflict about um, you know the bottom line. Yeah. And uh, you know I just because. One, I've been around so damn long. I mean, I, I remember serving Abraham Lincoln wine. But, uh, <laughs> speaking but, of But uh, we don't, you know, you, people say, well, or even some of my employees say, you know, we should be charging for wine, for tasting. Everybody's doing it. So you guys don't charge for tasting? No. Oh. No. You can go out there, taste through, and it's complimentary. Wow. Uh, and I am, uh, and I try to get more and more people, but it seems like everybody now, I don't mean with the exception of Toby. Yeah, there's still couple, three. Yeah, but there's there's maybe four or five wineries, and I think, man, that's I mean, you know, one of my mentors was Mr. Mandati, and uh, he was so adamant about that. And the other thing is, we're one of the very last wineries that will take you on a tour. Did you like our basement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very cool. I mean, it's every half hour uh, from 10, th we open at 10, and for every half hour up until 4 o'clock, uh, we have a tour every half hour, 4 o'clock being the last one. And then when we go to Daylight Savings Time, we're open to 6. So 5 o'clock would be the last tour. Yeah. Um, and it... You say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, it's really not. I mean, it takes one of our people 15 minutes to take people on a tour, usually about 12 people. That's not, the, that's not what costs. What costs is the liability insurance that I have to pay to take people onto a 
manufacturing oh, floor. That, yeah. The insurance is hideous. Yeah. It, it really is. But again, you know, at Mandavi, you had to take the tour before you could even taste wine. It's a great education for yeah. people. I, it taught me what wine caves are <laughs> when I was 21. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think, I think it's good for people to like see behind, you know, like see the work that goes into it, understand like where the wine comes from, um, not just like get to it understand, the yeah, yeah, what yeah. is going on, and uh, I, I think that it's uh, more than just something to do. I mean, it's good for business. But it's also good for educating people, and you know, it's one thing to, you know, what I one of the things I don't understand are the attraction or reason people will open up a tasting room like in downtown Paso or Healdsburg or yeah. people want to go; they want to see a winery. I like seeing the vineyard. I think yeah. it is convenient though. Like I gotta say, sometimes I agree. I feel like there's something special being around the grapes and seeing like where they come from. Mm -hmm. But convenience-wise, like if I'm about to go to dinner and I forgot to bring a bottle of wine, I like a downtown tasting room and oh. just like pop in and grab one. Like I, I can see that. Mm -hmm. So when you're not drinking your wine, who's your favorite? Oh, my favorite. Oh, geez, geez, geez. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think Randy Dunn is one of my favorite uh, Cabernet producers. Uh, Mike Weiss is one of my classmates. Um, you know, these are Cabernets. Uh, no, one of my classmates. I, I love her wines, even though I think I drove her crazy as Mary Edwards. We were in the class, same class together at Davis. I... Uh, I teased her unmercifully. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite tasty, this cab. Yeah, this is the, Cabernet is the reason that I, I don't know if you know my history. Just um, a, a little bit what Stacy told us. Okay, well, I, mean, I came out of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. uh, Penn State, down to LSU, Masters in Vertebrate Zoology. Started a doctorate at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Uh, where I was teaching histology and uh, uh, doing research in genetics. And I was a National Science Fellow, one of 140 National Science Fellows in the United States then, and uh, the only one in the state of Louisiana. Um, and I was really the golden boy. I, mean, I published papers, did research. <laughs> I was having a ball. Yeah. Except the academic politics were absolutely hideous. And anyway, I had a, one of my professors on my committee, he and I both loved opera. And we would get together every four to six weeks, and either at my apartment or his home, and the wives would cook dinner, and then they'd go to wherever the Chippendales were dancing. <laughs> and, uh, my kind of ladies. <laughs> we, we would, we would you know, open a couple bottles of wine, and we'd just listen to opera. Didn't, you didn't watch them, or sometimes we had recordings on old uh, 8-track, or, uh, yeah, I guess 8-track. But anyway, uh, and when we had dinner at my place, I would serve the finest wines of the time. This is 1970, 70, early 71, Matus and Lancers and Blue Nun. You know, because anyway, in 1970, if you didn't have an empty bottle of Matus on your dining room <laughs> table with a candle in it, you know, you were living in a single wide. It was, <laughs> it was a, uh, um, uh, you know, it showed that you were a cultured individual with good taste. Yeah. And it was, uh, Neil Diamond was singing about Crackling Rosie, <laughs> Crackling Rosé. Uh, um, and I'd go over there, and, and he would open up things like, uh, 66 Margots and 61 Lynchbage and uh, Lafitte's and Becheville and and I, I'm saying, man, I gotta get this guy, gotta get him educated. But somewhere along the line, and it happened relatively quickly. I had an epiphany, and I said, you know what? I like these wines. Oh, um, not all Cabernet. I mean, because we, 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 we were drinking 
things like Latasha and Romani Klein because they were cheap. I, I mean, wish. I even, wish. <laughs> even, even, then, even then, I mean, you know, I mean, you could get a bottle of Latasha for nine bucks. Wow. Yeah. I mean, now, in the nine bucks when the, when the bottle of Matus was two and a quarter, it was still expensive. But mm -hmm. I mean, but the disparity in prices went, you know, the, the really premium wines just yeah. went. Um, but I just, I just uh, said, I don't want to be a geneticist. I want to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and I took my transcripts and my papers and my uh, everything I'd done academically up mm -hmm. to Professor Berg, who was head of the department at Davis then. And he said, well, you're crazy. He said, finish your doctorate <laughs> and then come up here and do, and do a second doctorate. Not a problem. You're obviously qualified. We'll accept you without a qualifying exam because, you know, you're, you're doing doctoral work. You've got patents. You've got papers published. And I said, I, 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 I don't want to. I I'd never seen a winery, except in pictures. I'd never been to a winery. And I said, no. I'm. And if I'd had a son do what I did, I would have shot him, put him out of his, <laughs> put him out of his misery. I mean, You're it, you crazy. Know, you're nuts. You don't know. Come on. But um, um, I came in 71, went to Davis. Took all the coursework for my doctorate. Um, got a great job down here. Is, and there's a whole story about how here, but uh, to uh, make a long story short, here I am. And uh, I've never looked back. I, you can ask Stacy or anybody. I'm not here on you know, Sunday to see you. I was here all day yesterday. I'll be here today, I'll be here tomorrow. I'm, I live on the property. Mm -hmm. I love what I'm doing. It yeah. is, it That's is, awesome. I retired in 83 when I opened the doors here. <laughs> this is my, You've been retired longer than I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. I would awesome. like to find a way to become a professional wine drinker. We're trying. Yeah, we're creating we're trying. it for ourselves. <laughs> we're making it happen. Uh, this year will be the first year. Uh, we've been trying to do it for five years, but the, thank God there's a good grape supply this year. We will be, we will have in the 12 month period of right at 30,000 cases plus or minus 100. And that's where I see Eberly as a, the build out. Okay. Uh, 30,000 cases. Everybody thinks, you know, we're one of the big wineries in Paso Robles. I mean, you got wineries like, uh, um, you know, Justin and Opolo and Lore and uh, Dow and uh, Wild Horse, you know, I mean, really big wineries, Holford yeah. Ranch. We're not. I'm not that size. Don't want to get any bigger. And uh, I think our prices are not inexpensive, but I think our prices are very reasonable. I agree. Like yeah. that cab we just drank was delicious. And I was looking at the price and it's like $48 for yeah. an easy to drink good cab, I think is very reasonable. Yeah. yeah. And, and we don't charge for tasting. Uh, one of the things um, we do on a regular basis yesterday, um, myself and four of my friends, we barbecued and gave away um, I don't know, about $500 worth of meat, tri-tip, a duck sausage, and uh, baby, Danish baby back ribs. Here for people wine tasting? Yeah. That's it's nice of you, my goodness. It's complimentary. We, we put up a little sign that says, uh, uh, if you'd like to donate, we put a box, any money gathered will go to the local children's museums, and we've been doing that oh, for ever and ever. You guys and are tugging at my heartstrings here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think, I mean, I know we could charge more. Mm -hmm. I think I could charge for tasting. For sure. I could tell people, hey, uh, we'll take you on a tour of the, the winery, but it's going to cost you $10. That's what most places do. You have to pay for it. Don't do it. 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, I played football. I'm not at my, my playing weight anymore. I'm not <laughs> missing any meals. Yeah. Uh, I am rich beyond what I even possibly. I grew up in a house with painted plywood floors, except in the kitchen we had linoleum. The only way I got to to college was a football scholarship. I wouldn't. I was going to a steel mill. I've got a great house. Um, I've got a great business. I have spectacular employees. Yeah. My biggest problem is often, particularly in the hospitality part of it, you get people that are so good, and they deserve to be tasting room managers. But I got a great tasting room manager. Yeah. <laughs> and I've spun off more hospitality people than I've spun off uh, uh, winemakers. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I get good people and I uh, treat them well. Uh, we've got a full, uh, we've got a, what they call a Cadillac Medical plan, full medical, dental, optical. That's really nice. Yeah. Can I come work? Please. Right? <laughs> Can my husband have a job? <laughs> and at the end of the at the end of the year, for every dollar they put into a four hundred one k or a, a, a an IRA, we match. Wow, that's awesome. So, yeah, that's but really they awesome. good people. Yeah, I? yeah. I mean, I mean, look at this. It's. I, yeah. I have to say, when we pulled up, I was like, it is packed out in here. Yeah. Like, especially at 11 o'clock on a Sunday, right. that's pretty exceptional. Hey, come here in July or August <laughs> or October. It, you can't get in. I, I should be, I should make everything free except put parking meters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, I think having, you know, the free tasting, like, yes, there will be the people who just come in because, oh, we can go drink some wine for free. But more often than not, people are going to find something they love and then they say, oh, I didn't spend $10 or $15 on the tasting. Like, I can put that towards a bottle of wine that I want to purchase and take mm -hmm. to dinner or share with my family. And then, you know, it just organically kind of markets itself because then I share it with her. She goes, yeah. I really like that wine. I'm going to go see them, buy more mm -hmm. wine just grows from there well and I feel like people knowing like you know I would have if we hadn't been interviewing you I never would have known that you treat your employees so well and obviously you have a very happy staff because everybody's been <laughs> incredibly friendly but like I'm more inclined to buy wine from somebody that I know treats their employees well and is a kind person and like I love mm -hmm. a family environment I'm mm -hmm. a sucker for that like so I think it's good for like people to know that yeah. Well, again, uh, Mr. Mandavi, because um, she and I, it was, it was weird, weird relationship. And you talk <laughs> about Mont and Jeff. And we were very, very far apart in, in age. And he just, I don't know what, I mean, he just sort of took me under his wing. But in Napa, when they were starting to charge, uh -huh. just starting, and he was so irate. And I was, you know, thinking, what do you think about it? And we talked about it. And he said, don't you ever charge. He said, you do not need, because at that time it was, you know, we're going to charge you $10, but if you buy something, mm -hmm. we'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll apply it. He said, don't you ever bribe your, your uh, customers. If you have to, you know, you make the wine so good that they're going to buy it. That you don't have to bribe them with ten dollars or whatever. Yeah. And I, I never thought I of it like that, them. but I mean, it does kind of make sense. Yeah. And I mean, if you look around, well, not back here, but out front, there's a lot of awards and medals and yeah. stuff, and that's not all of them. I mean, I mean, that's the only ones that are up there are gold or better. Golds, double golds, platinums. That's we don't put anything silver or bronze. We, we just. And we have, I mean, we've run out of wall space. Yeah. And we're, because I mean, we have got, we talked to Jenna, one of her, because I'm saying, hey, we just got six more, you know, put them, uh, where are we going to put them? <laughs> um, we make good wine. Yeah, you do. And we make good wine at a price. In fact, I sometimes, 
I sometimes think that our um, prices almost are detrimental to our reputation because, well, if, if it's so good, why is it only $40 or why is it only $35? Yeah, I can see that. Because <clears throat> I'm, making, I'm making good money. And yeah. it, I treat my people right. And um, uh, I don't see, you know, it's, it's, come on, it's just a bottle of wine. Um, yeah. You know, you're running it. answer to life's problems right Yeah, you're running it for four to six hours. I mean, it's, you know, you're converting good Cabernet to Chardonnay in four hours. <laughs> It's a bottle of wine. It's just... So I understand <clears throat> that you have a story about the Syrah. Mm -hmm. I um, planted the first Syrah vineyard in the United States. In, How cool. Here uh, locally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have Australia. Uh, it's a Chaputier clone. Uh, it was not a Samsonite or a, an American tourist or clone. It was something that Dr. Omo, who was on my committee got from Max Chaputier, I guess sometime in the 40s, uh -huh. before there was quarantines and all this stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, it was, he brought it in to essentially make it available to the state. Well, he planted it on a vineyard at Davis, and right after they did that, the state came in and put I-80 in, and there's a clover leaf, and it cut off a section of vineyard. And that was it. And nobody wanted it. There was no interest in it. I mean, back then, it, you know, it was, you know, Barbera Grenache, because that was the Valley Grapes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I hate to say Palomino, but a lot of Palomino. <laughs> I mean, it just, it was not, I mean, California had, I mean, the world hadn't, the United States hadn't really discovered um wine at that point. I mean, it was purely jug wine stuff. <laughs> and um, Brian Crozier, uh, who has Petaluma Winery down in Australia, he came to get his master's. And he brought a bunch of, because he worked at Hardy's as an assistant winemaker. And he brought, uh, I don't know, Shiraz, who was convicts, didn't know how to spell. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, some Cab Shiraz blends, and and he was a student. And, you know, we'd get together every now and then. Always, you know, graduate students were always brown bagging, trying to fool each other. And he always was showing his Shiraz. And at first, because it was that old style Chardonnay, or uh, uh, Syrah Shiraz, you know, the big, I mean, you stand a fork up in the glass. And, um, but it, you know, it, t it tasted it enough that it sort of, because it had, you know, it had that distinctive, uh, you know, like what I call blueberries and blood. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, uh, I just started exploring and I found out that there was no Syrah in the state. And so I set out to get some and, uh, with the help of Doc Olmo and Dr. Alley, I got some of those cuttings that had been cut off in that vineyard that was still growing out there. Yeah. In fact, graduate students used to pull in this on the inside loop of one of the clover leaves and practice pruning. <laughs> but nobody, and Doc Olmo uh, had me go out with Doc Alley and we actually got some cuttings. And uh, But anyway, yeah, no, and then I, I sold Bob Lindquist. Well, yeah, Bob Lindquist. Yeah. Uh, Randall Graham, uh, I mean, every, I mean I, Steve Edmonds, everybody got their Syrah from me. I mean, wow. and it's still referred cool. to as the Estrella clone. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, it's it's a Chaputier uh, from Taine there in the middle of the Rhone. Okay, well, I would say conservatively, at least 65% of all the Syrah grown in the United States is the clone that I've yeah. propagated. I've been, I've been making it continuously, just like Barbera, too. I love Barbera. I've been making it since 78. I love it. <laughs> what do you love so much about it? Like, what makes it 
stand out to you? Um, you know, it's got that real high acid. It, it is a palate cleansing red wine. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you know very food friendly. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And for the same reason you put, you know, lemon on fish is to cut the oil of yeah. uh, the acids in wine. That's why white wines are t traditionally, you know, with oily, pelagic fishes. Barbera has that natural acidity. When I came to California, the two most widely planted grapes in the state were Grenache and Barbera. Oh. Grenache, because you had that strawberry character, easy growing quickly, big crop. Barbera, because you didn't have to acidulate it. <laughs> and the jug wines, which was you know the 98% uh, of the industry, were those two wines. And, uh, and I think it's the, the main reason that it took so long for Barbera and Grenache to be accepted as premium varietals because they were always the jug wine yeah. from the valley grapes. Yeah. My grandpa used to keep <clears throat> a jug of wine on the like bottom cabinet and he would add sugar to it. Mm. Or vodka. Yeah. Or whatever. Sure. Thank you. So what is it, so Barbera is one of your favorite wines. What is your favorite wine to make? Is it Barbera as well? No, Cabernet. I mean, we, we didn't even talk about the Cabernet. Cabernet is the reason that I came to California. Okay. I was going to make a great Bordelais wine, and, uh, and, and my Cabernets are always 100%. While well, you guys are drinking Barbera, i got to have a little bit more Cabernet. <laughs> <laughs> Active duty, military, or veterans, doesn't matter. And then about uh, 10 years ago, we added uh, uh, law enforcement. We have 40% discount. Wow. Um, wow, that is steep. That that is... Is... I almost caught my wine. <laughs> That's really... That is awesome. That's so. Um, well, these guys, you know, I tried to be in the Marines yeah. because my football, I tried to be a Detroit Lion. I couldn't pass their physical or the Marines twice. But, uh, you know, you're talking people that give up a big hunk of their life, mm -hmm. and some of them are grievously killed or grievously oh, yeah, wounded. Yeah, I say no. And a policeman, remember, it was, it, it, I, oh, I say it was about 10 years, but about 10 years ago, eight years ago, I forget exactly, they there was a group that assassinated five policemen in Dallas. Because up to that point, we had always just been veterans, although most of them overlap. Yeah. Um, and we had, but I mean, if you have the potential to be shot at, in my name, mm -hmm. you yeah. deserve. You some. deserve a bottle of wine. Yeah. And they don't make that much money. No, they don't. <laughs> For no, what really they do. Don't. I know, right? For what it's they crazy. do. It's crazy. But we, uh, yeah, no, uh, from from day one, we've, we I've done it for the veterans. And then, uh, it's about 10 years now, we were doing it for law enforcement also. That's awesome. And people really say, cool. whoa, whoa, 40%, man. I said, it's still, I'm still getting 60. Yeah. And it's still better than selling at wholesale. And you feel good about it. Yeah. yeah and, and, and we sell half. You know, the 30,000 cases, we make half of it. It's right here. Yeah. And this is, again, Mr. Mandavi. You make money selling direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. I've been doing direct-to-consumer sales my whole safe. I mean, it's the reason I was so successful. Yeah. yeah. And we, we cater. We want people to come here. Yeah. So I have seen your wines before, like at Bonds, when I'm grocery shopping and stuff. In the Tascadero? In the Tascadero. Yeah. Um, it's about the only Vaughn store we're in. <laughs> we're not, in the Albertsons here. That's the one here. I go to. Um, are all of your wines available in the store or only some wines and some you have to come here to get? Um, well, our, we have you know a wine club. Oh, and those okay. wines are only available to the club. But, um, well, all of our wines... Are available. Stacy, the, the the thing we have, we don't have a 12 month supply of any wine we make. So there's always like, you know, come the end of the summer when everyone wants rose, we're out of rose. Yeah, yeah. And the muscat usually runs out. Um, but, in, in, and there's maybe a month or two between 
the release of the, or they're even making it, like the muscat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we make this muscat, and uh, it's usually released. We try to get it available by Thanksgiving, but certainly by Christmas. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, everything is available except very special things that we do. Is it, Stace, all, all of our stuff is available if, if it's not a club member wine in the stores, isn't it? Well, um, you know, around here in the local market, you're going to find most of our core varietals in the grocery stores. We don't really have a lot of fine wine shops. Mm -hmm. um, but as you get out into the bigger world, um, we, you know, we don't really make a lot of wine. So our distribution in the store channels goes down, but really um, have a greater focus on premise. Yeah, it just depends yeah. on where. And and we, I mean, you're not going to find us case stacked at, uh, in fact, you probably have a hard time finding us at all at Costco. Every now and then. Every now and then, I mean, you know, Costco was like the number one wine retailer a few yeah. years yeah. ago. When I go to Costco, I sit there and I love, I mean, they've got <laughs> such great product. Yeah. Um, so, you know, here and there, um, we get great scores. They want a little bit of our wine. And, and your wholesaler do. has, I mean, if they yeah. want it, the wholesaler, if they have it, they by law they have mm -hmm. to sell it to them. But we're just not big enough to yeah. be, yeah. you know, distribution. You know, I'm I'm always amazed when when I when I listen. You know, you know, Daniel's really good at George. You know, oh, we're just a little small little family winery, and you go into Costco and there are pallets, <laughs> dial Cabernet case stack. Yeah. Mm, come on. <laughs> then we cut that out. <laughs> we will. So anyway, I just want to make sure, I'm not trying to rush through the wines, I want to make sure that we're covering the gamut. Yeah. yeah. But the Muscat Canelli is, this wine, I mean, we literally take the first case that comes off the line in December of bottling, and we bring it up to the taste room because we sell out of this wine every year. Usually and about the first six cases that come up one at a time. As so soon it's as they come off the line, people are waiting for. They call us and say, "When when's the Muscat <laughs> being bottled?" We social media about when we yeah. release this wine. But this is one of our state varietals that I was talking about. And um, you know, one of the things it's a semi-sweet wine. It's very well made. Our winemaker would probably say this is one of the most difficult wines that he has to make because arresting that fermentation and holding mm -hmm. that acid and a little bit of its natural natural effervescence mm -hmm. um, is key. But you know, tasting this wine to different psalms all across the United States their face always lights up and it's just like oh it this smells is a really amazing. well made oh yeah. it's and Gary has fun stories to tell about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it smells I used to tell everybody because it's a stop fermentation and it's typically about mm, five residual and uh, ten alcohol in that yeah. range. And uh, mm -hmm. we uh, I say you know this is the one bottle of wine you can drink an entire bottle of this and still legally drive yourself to a hospital for an <laughs> insulin shot. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> By the way, this is, I just, I brought this up for Chris, because uh, these are, this is a wine I made wow. in 79. We oh just, goodness. we just opened that up the other day. And how was it? Yeah. That's great. Oh, yeah. It's, I love all it's the information great. on here. So do you, do you have like, a sure. lot of your old wines that you open from time to time? Would or? you like a 76 Cabernet? Yes. I have <laughs> Is that a trick question? <laughs> yeah, I feel like. <laughs> Every single Cabernet I have made since 1976 wow. is available to buy. And we sell. That's um, awesome. Old, in there. Uh, again, Mr. Mandavi. Make sure you have a library that is deep yeah. and available. And people come in, they say, geez, my son was born in 1998. Oh. And we were, you have it? We got it. Hey, Stace. Yes. What if, because DeRose isn't around. Yeah. Why don't you go down in the library? Yes. And pull something old in the way of Cabernet. Okay. <laughs> that case, but you have to make sure. No, make make sure that you uh, write it down, or DeRose will be jumping Don't up and down. Don't worry, I will. Yeah. I know how to do that. Yeah. No. I mean, I've got. Uh, yeah, that's hard to do. I I would imagine to like know how much to save and when to release it and stuff. <sighs> um. 
actually, it, it's been pretty easy. People say, well, geez, you know, you, you, you know, you've got, you know, I mean, really good things. You know, we, we'll, we'll hold back as much as two pallets, you know. 112 I'm cases. I'm how many cases is that? <laughs> 56 cases to a pallet. And, uh, and people say, well, how can you afford Well, You hold it in a properly conditioned, mm -hmm. you know, 68 degrees. But when people buy it, we, we don't sell it for the same price as, I mean, yeah. it. we more than make up for the cost of storing it. <laughs> Not a whole, it's not gouging, but I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you can go back and, you know, a, a wine that I'm particularly proud of was my 80 Cabernet, because it has the UC Davis uh, 75th anniversary back label on it. Mm. It was one of six Cabernets uh, that the enology department um, selected in, to be in their anniversary collection, their 75th anniversary. And then, uh, uh, David, uh, oh, he was Ronald Reagan's wine buyer up uh, in Sacramento. He selected it. It was the wine Reagan took to China. And then every time the Reagans, I mean, I got a nice note from President Reagan. Every time <laughs> the president was coming out west, uh, we would get a note. We would know ahead of time. Can you please get us four cases of this wine, and it would be that's, delivered to that's a point. Pretty cool. <laughs> and it was served to Thatcher and Gorbachev. And if you go to the Reagan Museum in Simi Valley, mm -hmm. there's a full bottle of my eighty cab there. What is it? It's nineteen ninety two estate. Okay. I'm gonna yeah. give it a glass. So I have a question about this one because this is Muscat Canelli. Uh -huh. So in aging wine. I know like the basic, you know, rules, if you will, are how, how much tannic structure there is, how much acidity. So with having residual sugar, how does that change as it ages? Does it have more sweetness or is it less sweet? Mm. I, uh, Good question. I can't, I can't uh, uh, show it to you, but <laughs> I, can, I can only tell you that that wine is so well balanced, sugar and acid. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, that wine was not sterile filtered. Okay. I mean, you've got that much sugar, and you say, well, that's kind of fermenting. <laughs> How much red? But the sugar and alcohol wines like this hit a synergy that the sugar and alcohol sterilize it. Okay. The fermentation stops itself. The yeast cannot live yeah. in that much alcohol and that much sugar. Mm -hmm. It's it becomes they both become the other as a lemon. I don't know, I'm just gonna open it up. <laughs> and I'm right here to help. <laughs> no, this is such a special treat. I mean this is like yeah. one of eight bottles left. Oh that's awesome. Oh that's one of eight bottles here. Now my cellar <laughs> I've got at least two cases of this. Well, still, two cases, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's what I think I love about wine is that it's like this finite thing that captures like this this one specific moment in time. Yes. And then the beauty of it is that when it's gone, it's gone. Like it's that's gone. over. Yeah. Well, look, look at this against a white background, too. There's no orange. There's no bricking. Mm -mm. There's no oxidation. This wine is... You know, it's got it's bottle bouquet. I mean, it's it's not going to smell like you know. I think it smells great. I kind of I like it. that. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's, that's bottle bouquet. And people say, "What's bottle bouquet?" Well, growing up on the East Coast, uh, to me, bottle bouquet is like going into a uh, a grandmother or a maiden aunt's attic, and it's full of potpourris and clothes, <laughs> and it's not musty, it's not moldy, but there's a certain Bouquet. Bouquet about it. Yeah. And this is fun. I mean, it's tasting an old wine. I mean, who who ages wines anymore, right? No, it's true. like it's got that old yeah. world kind of essence to it, which I really love. It's one of those wines you can just sit there and savor and just, mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's delicious. It doesn't even need food. <laughs> no. So you've been here for 12 years. Yes. 
like, what did you start doing here? You know, I, um, I'm originally from the area. I told you I graduated yeah, yeah. from Cal Poly. We didn't have, uh, the wine industry wasn't as developed when I graduated in 1995. Or no, when did I graduate? No, 1990. Oh, God. Um, and so I went up and I worked in produce. I moved out of the area and I came back in 2000 and I worked behind the counter in the tasting room while I had a part-time job doing the PR at the California Mid-State Fair. Oh, neat. And uh, then I went to work uh, for Wild Horse as their retail operations manager. Shoot that out of nuts. I did. I told him. I said, I, you know, my dad's a cattle rancher, dry-on farmer. That's what Castro was. Yeah. And it's like, what's this guy doing? Putting a winery in, you know? And now look at us. How many wineries and how many billion dollar, you know? It's million. so weird, like driving. I drive to Cambria from Atascadero every day. And, you know, I grew up in Cambria and I remember when it was all cows, horses, or brown earth. You know, there wasn't. And now it's beautiful. I love seeing it. But it's, I can't imagine starting even before that. Like, I probably can remember from like 94. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was born in 85, so I can't imagine coming here in the 70s. Born in 85. <laughs> <laughs> but it's brought a really great, in, you know, to this growing up, you either were a rancher, farmer, or a small businessman. And, you know, having an industry like this here has brought a lot of great things to the area. It has. So, yeah, um, yeah there's. I don't like to pat him too much on the back, especially when he's sitting right here. Mm. <laughs> I think it's well deserved. Yes. Yes. Looked not bad for a 28-year-old bottle of Yeah. No. Delicious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I told you. I feel like it still has a lot of life left, too. too. It's what? It's still, still a lot, lot of life, life left. Yeah. I, I really struggle with, like, saving my wine. Like, I have wine fridges downstairs that have what bottles I put away for like, like last night we had some friends over for dinner and we opened a couple bottles and, but I'm, I like, I get anxiety about not drinking it in time. Right. Or like, what if I get in a car accident and you I You have a lot of anxiety You're gonna be looking I down. I drink yeah. it, like my husband says, we'll just have one hell of a wake. <laughs> right. <laughs> just open every bottle you have. Well, what is it, to, isn't but it something? Like, like ninety percent of the per wine you purchase purchase today is consumed within twelve hours. Yeah, I'm totally guilty of that. Like, no, that's her. I'm so like, I'm like, did you drink that yet? I haven't drank mine yet. And she's like, oh, that's been gone for months. It was great. <laughs> but not only that, it's finding a wine that will age, like yeah. you said. I mean, I bought a two thousand, you know, opened a two thousand fourteen the other night of a different wine, and I was like, oh, I worry about my judgment. You know, like my. But if it's balanced, and you know, I'm, I'm with with rare exceptions, if it's balanced, and I'm talking red wine, mm -hmm. if it's balanced going into the bottle, it will age if you age it properly. Yeah. Uh, white wines are, and there's a there's a whole different. So with your wines, both red and white, um, would so let's say I buy one of everything. Do you want me, <laughs> might as well kill me, but do you want me to like go home and enjoy them this week or do you want me to lay them down? Do you want me to put them in my wine fridge that's controlled, everything's just right? Or like what's okay. in your perfect world? Well, in my perfect world, what I do, I, I you know, I, I, my standard joke was, you know, when people buy a bottle of wine on Friday, if it's still in the house on Monday, there's been a death or a divorce. <laughs> okay. When I release my wines now, you know, we do reserves, but we do reserve, like in the 90s, we only did four reserves. Mm -hmm. We've never done more than five reserves in a decade. Those wines we think are special and they need to be put down for at least five to eight years, stored well. This is not a reserve. And it was drinkable when it was released. And it was drinkable five years after and 10 years after. It's still drinkable. Yeah. Um, my 91 reserve, it will be drinkable for another 20 years. This one is getting tired. It is starting to get tired, but it's still not bricking. But uh, I recognize that 98% or more, or something 
of the wines that I produce are going to be consumed within a year of the time they're bought. Yeah. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't have any problem with that. That's right. Yeah. But at the same time, I recognize, and I've, I can give you some exceptions like 84 and some wines that I made um, that did not handle aging gracefully. But for the most part, yeah. Now, and I'm talking Cabernet. Actually, Cabernet and Barbera. Barbera ages beautifully. Mm. Man. Ooh. Um, but uh, I, uh, if you buy a bottle of my Cabernet, this, you know, what we have out there right now, you can drink it tonight and it will be enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you it will be enjoyable in 10 years, probably 20 years. If you buy a reserve, and we've got, I think, an 09 reserve. Uh, well, it's a, but we, I mean, like I said, we've never done more than five in a decade. Um, and, and when we do a reserve, it's always off of the estate vineyard, and it's always the best barrels of uh, a, a given lot, and it blended together and gets extra tension. <laughs> and we, we blend it for a little bit better aging and it's not as approachable when it's young uh, and and then that's they're made for connoisseurs uh, yeah. you know. I've noticed like I was in France um, last month and a lot of the wine bottles there on the label they have a picture of the glass and then like the temperature to drink it in and I dig that. Like, give me information. Like, I just, I think it's great. Tell me, yeah. tell me what to do, and I will do it. If it well, Amer Americans it drink wine too cold. Yeah. Right across the board, we really do. Yeah. Um, and I, w I will agree with that. But at the same time, you know, I like my white wines at. Room, I mean, it's 68 to 70 degrees. I don't want to serve them at 55. Yeah. Uh, I, I want my red wines at uh, 75 <laughs> and not uh, 85. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Just a second. See. Oh. <laughs> Leave him alone for just a minute. Oh. See if I can get both of them. I love it. It'll be a great way to conclude. Thank you for listening to this episode of Central Coast Uncorked. We hope that you enjoyed hearing the tasting experience from our point of view. If you did enjoy the episode, please rate, review, subscribe on your podcast platform and maybe even share it with a friend. Connect with us on social media because we will be posting places that we're headed and that we're recording at. So you'll get some inside tips that we don't release in the podcast. And you can also let us know where you think we should go. We'll see you guys next week for another new episode. Bye. Bye.